Hello, welcome to Bethel Baptist Church Podcast. Today, October 25th, 2020, we will look at the command to love one another with Pastor Ronnie. I have a favorite kind of pen. Do any of you guys have favorite pens? It's like a big accomplishment for me if I use up all the ink in it. And I didn't actually think of this illustration really until I was sitting down there listening to the songs. I did start out the day with my favorite pen. John's holding up his. I started the day with mine, but it's missing in action already. So maybe that's why it's such an accomplishment for me when I use up a pen, because I didn't lose it that long. Uh, but it, it also feels like, oh man, I got something done. I must have, because I used up a whole thing of ink, right? That illustration of the ocean and how long, if you started writing, even if you filled all that, the immeasurableness of God's love. That's going to be a huge key that we're going to look at today. The immeasurable, how immeasurable God's love is. And the fact that as uh, Dave was singing, if God's love is real in us, we naturally are going to live differently and people will know us by our love. And if people truly do know you just by how you're loving others, it's, it's going to take something that's impressionable and that's real in your life. We're going to look at that today. I, I sometimes feel like a broken record every time that I start a sermon because I only get to preach when Pastor Steve's gone usually three or four times a year and I feel like I have to do a lot of uh, bringing you up to pace on where we were from last time. So last time I preached, we started a new series called The One and Others. It was kind of an introductory sermon. The idea was we need to have the mind of Christ. And it was really hard to preach that message without jumping in to this one. Uh, so I'm excited to get to this one. We are going to be looking at God's love. What does that mean for us from different passages? What do you guys love? When I ask myself that question, what do I love? It's hard to not think of that. T-bone steak, porterhouse, especially, oh, I'm going to use this new laser thing, especially this little piece right here, the tenderloin on the side. Ooh, that's good. A little kick of salt, savory, very filling, satisfying, get done eating it, and you're just in your happy place, right? Something else that I love, I love, whoops, not that part. I love the Minnesota Vikings. I know. It's kind of insane love, maybe. But uh, I definitely remember I was sitting in the Johnston's house when this moment happened. Vikings were down 23 to 24. There was like 17 seconds left. And I was wearing a hoodie, and I pulled it over my face, and I was like, I can't believe we did this again and lost this lead. And Jesse said, there's still time on the clock. The play happens. I remember the call. Uh, Caught, digs, sideline, touchdown. Unbelievable. Vikings win it. My heart rate was pounding. My brother was working in the ER and had snuck into a room to watch the last minutes of the game that was unoccupied. And he took his heart rate after it. I can't remember now what he said, so I won't quote it, but it was very, very elevated. And I don't know if you know this or not. I don't have one, so I didn't know it, but I learned about it. Apple Watches or or Fitbits even, I think sometimes, but Apple Watches specifically track your, some of them can track your heart rate. 
and they'll give heart attack alerts when you're sedentary and your heart rate jumps. And there were tons of these heart attack alerts that happened in the stadium right when that happened. I'm also a Twins fan, so those, those really good, enjoyable moments that I love is any time that we can beat the Packers or the Yankees. That's, that's just happiness. What do you guys love? Somebody tell me something that you love. Ice cream. It's a good choice. Homework? I think we have a sinner over there. What else? Five scoops of ice cream. That's a lot of happiness. Anyone else? Family? I thought for sure I was going to get another sports team to compete with the Vikings, but I guess you're all on page with me. So, Now, let's flip the script a little bit, though. What if I get this steak? Maybe I paid some... De- I mean, you kind of pay decent money for any steak, but it comes in on the plate. I'm so excited about it, and it's overdone. It's like chewy, full of gristle. Man, that's disappointing, right? I'll tell you what else is disappointing. When your sports team has an 18-game postseason losing streak that happens to be the longest losing streak in any North American major sport. Awesome. And it's active. So we can always extend that next year, you know. Uh, How about Blair Walsh's missed... 27-yard kick in 2015, and his time expired in Seattle, and we lost. You're not supposed to miss 27-yard kicks. That happened in 1998, too, except it was a 38-yarder. Or Brett Favre's interception uh, in the last seconds of the NFC Championship game against the Saints. I won't say which one, but one of those, I was in the dorms at Faith when it happened, and I was so mad, I took my phone and threw it against the wall as hard as I could. Went and locked myself in my room. It was a very sanctified response. And all of my very sanctified friends kept coming on the door and knocking on it. Did you see the game? Did you see the game? Yes, I saw the game. So that anger, that uh, attitude was kind of revealing, I think, about what do I love? Now, sometimes it's easy to say, oh, it's okay to love those things. Yeah, that's, that's fine, right? But when my response is that way, maybe the question is not, what do I love? It's, who do I love? Because I love steak that makes me feel happy. I don't like it when it doesn't make me feel happy. I don't like my sports teams when they keep losing. I like what makes me happy, right? I love me. Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12. The big idea we're going to look at today is we are to imitate Christ in our love for one another. So we're going to go, and we're going to start in Mark chapter 12. We're just going to kind of move through a couple different passages today to help us understand how or what loving one another looks like. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And this will kind of lead right into our first point, which is going to be love one another as yourself. So, verse 28, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reason together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, and him is Jesus there, which is the first commandment of all? (laughs) 
Uh, I feel like this question has, this attitude of this question, we've seen in politics a lot recently. You'll see these debates uh, or, you know, whatever, and somebody has crafted this question to try and get either party to say something that's maybe self-incriminating. And they've, or, or maybe even this court case uh, or hearings about the new judge that uh, they're looking at. Some of those questions kind of seem that way. And the Jewish leaders were doing this, and actually in the context of this, they've done this several times, come up to Jesus with these carefully crafted questions to kind of catch him, try and get him to incriminate uh, himself. Uh, and that's what they're doing in this verse. So the rabbis had determined that there were 613 commandments, which corresponds for uh, one of each letter that's in the Ten Commandments. So for each letter, there was one commandment they had determined. They determined that 243 of these were uh, in the positive light and 365 were negative. And then they also divided them into heavy in light categories. So basically, some laws were more binding than others. Some of them were maybe a little bit more, oh, you should probably do this. Um, however, they could never come to agreement into which laws fell into which category. And so um, some scholars think that that's where they were trying to trap Jesus in this question to kind of get him to reveal where he landed on that. Um, but in any regard, Jesus sees right through their question and quotes from them, or for them, uh, a few of the commandments. So Jesus answers verse 29, the question, which was once again, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered and quotes from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 5. The first commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Then he adds a second commandment, just a bonus there. This is the second commandment like this. He quotes from Leviticus 19.18, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus quotes from the same commandments that the scribe was referencing here. Um, and he follows up the first commandment with the second commandment, I think that indicates the critical nature of them kind of being tied together. If you have one, you've got the other. We're going to look more at that in a bit. Genuine love for God is followed in importance by a genuine love for people. It just, it has to go that way. And we'll look at that. I can't help but uh, think that he did this having known his uh, audience. The religious leaders, as we've seen, or as you can see in other passages in Scripture, uh, had a lot of pride in their supposed love for God. They were pretty proud of that. Uh, and that's can be seen easily in how they treated other people and how they looked down and saw themselves as these religious elite and everyone else was just kind of these people that were struggling to attain maybe what they had. This leads us back to the opening uh, illustration maybe a little bit, loving steak or loving me. Who was it that the scribe was really loving in, the, in these Pharisees as we kind of generalize this people group and in, in Scripture, without taking time to show you a bunch of passage to that, it's pretty clear that they loved themselves uh, and not God. It is quite possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. Scripture is also clear on that, and it's clear on the worthless nature 
of that. When we do that, the only person that we're really fooling is ourselves. So let's look at the scribe's answer in verse 32. So the scribe answered him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other than he. And to love him with all the heart, or yeah, with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as itself, it is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So I think if if you try to think about how he might have answered that, he was trying to trick Jesus into incriminating himself, and Jesus sees through it and gives the perfect answer. And so the scribe has to agree with him. If you think about that, maybe in the political realm, like the last thing one of these political parties wants to do is to have to agree with the other one. That would just be awful. And so you can almost see the scribe, he has to agree with Jesus, but he must have been like, ah, don't really want to do this. Verse 34 then, Jesus, or now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, but after that no one dared uh, to question him. As I was studying through this, I actually had my sermon pretty much all done, and before I noticed this. There's something different, though, between how Jesus quotes this passage and what the scribe says. Maybe you noticed, Jesus used, well, he directly quotes, but he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, without, with all your strength. The scribe says, uh, let's see, in verse 33, to love the Lord, or to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor. So I don't know if this was intentional. I didn't deep dive into the words and all that, but was that a Freudian slip maybe? He pulled all the personal pronouns out of the commandment. I just thought that was interesting. I'll let you decide on that. But Jesus compliments the scribe on agreeing with him and then says, you're not far from the kingdom. Now that might sound nice, like, oh, I'm close, but that's not how the scribe would have viewed himself. If you're not far from the kingdom, that means you're not in the kingdom, right? You're not really saved. You're not one of uh, God's children. So what was the scribe missing here? What was he missing? He, he knew the commandment. He said the commandment. He agreed with Jesus on it. What was he missing? I'm just going to hang that question up here for a minute and leave you guys hanging on that, and we'll come back to that. What was he missing? Sometimes when we think of this idea of loving God, loving others, it's tempting to think, oh, yeah, I can do that. I can love God. I can love others. I'll just add that, right, with the other things that I love, and we'll be good. I'm good, right? So I think we need to take a little look at what does it actually mean to love God. Love is a verb. It's a word used to describe an action, a state, or a verb, sorry, is a word used to describe an action, state, or occurrence. And God's love actually kind of flows in each of those categories. We experience God's love in a, in a mutual loving relationship at the point of salvation. That's an occurrence that happens. And then we are in that loving relationship as a state forever. But then we're also supposed to show that love and experience that love in an ongoing, not knowledge, I mean knowledge, yes, 
but action. In this case, Jesus is showing us that unless the action is present, the occurrence never happened. Therefore, the state isn't secure. Love in action is the effect of a loving relationship with God, which is the cause. Now, we talked about this a lot in the first John series that we went through, right? I think I usually used a water bottle. If I drop this, you guys should know this by now, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. If you really love God, Jesus is saying, what is going to happen? You're going to love others, right? And so if you're not, if, if this water bottle isn't falling, it's going to be pretty hard for me to convince you guys that I dropped it, right? What does it mean to love God? Love in action is a huge part of that. The scribe knew uh, the commandment, but obviously he had not believed in it. And we know that from Jesus explicitly telling us that. Uh, but he had not acted upon his knowledge. We think of love sometimes as emotion. Ooh, it's a feeling. Uh, it's something that happened to you. Maybe it's something you know. Oh, I know that I am in love with Olivia. But in reality, love is something that you do. At least that's how it is uh, portrayed in Scripture and, and, as we'll see, given to us by God. The greatest commandment is very clear in the action of love. It uses the modifiers that are supplied there with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I've got to be honest with you guys for a minute. I don't know that I've ever done that with anything. Maybe think about that for a second. Have you ever done anything with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Now, I haven't been this way in a long time, but I used to fancy myself to be a little bit of a runner and to at least be in moderately good shape. I was motivated by some mountain hunting and some different things one time. In fact, me and my friend worked out uh, for a whole year, and we were trying to get really good endurance and cardio, so we would do core lifts, and then in between them, usually when you're doing like powerlifting, you would do your lift, and then you get like a 30-second minute break for recovery. Well, instead of doing breaks for recovery, we would run suicides in the gym, if you know what those are. And so there was a lot of puking that happened. It was pretty gross, but we had a policy that once you puked, you got to be done with your workout. So I would work out with all my heart, soul, and mind until I puked. Then, whew, we're done. I quit because I don't like feeling sick, and I love me, right? I watched a video this week. Uh, it was about a Navy SEAL, and it was, writ or it was told by the perspective uh, of this wealthy businessman who decided he wanted to run a 100-mile uh, race, and they decided that him and their three buddies, so there were four of them, they each were going to do like 25 miles and do four stints and kind of relay this race. And you were in charge of supplying all your own gear. And so they had tents set up. They had hired uh, like physical therapists to do massages on them. They had extra clothing, shoes, food, hydration stuff. Excuse me. Uh, and they had all this gear and they're all set up. And they said, here comes this guy. He probably weighed 260 pounds, which is not the ultra-marathon runner build, and he had a box of crackers and a jug of water. 
And they're like, is this guy going to run it? And he ran the whole 100 miles himself. And when he finished, he had fractured bones in his feet and was in kidney failure. And they were, he was totally blown away that this guy did it. And he couldn't let it go. He couldn't stop thinking about it. And so later, remember this is a wealthy businessman, so he can do stuff like this. He looked up the guy, flew out to where he lived, and had lunch with him. And he, he just felt like there's something that this guy has that I don't have. Something in his drive that I just don't understand. And so he actually paid the guy to come live with him and to be his trainer for 30 days to see what he could learn from him. And the very first day they get in the weight room and he says, all right, I want you to do as many pull-ups as you can. And this guy, uh, as come to find out, is a Navy SEAL. And so he just called him SEAL. So SEAL, the 260-pound ultramarathon runner, tells him, do as many pull-ups as you can. So the guy did eight. He's like, I'm not real great at pull-ups, so eight is what I can do. And I'm thinking, oh, eight sounds really good to me. Uh, but anyways, so he did eight, and the SEAL said, okay, 30 seconds. 30 seconds is up. Do eight more. He could only do six. He said, okay, 30 seconds. Do six more. He could only do three. He said, after three, arms are just burning, feel like jello. And he's like, I was done. I was like, can't do any more. And the SEAL said, all right, 30 seconds, do three more. And he said, I can't. And the SEAL said, we're not leaving this room until you do 100 more pull-ups. And guess what? He did 100 more pull-ups, one at a time. And the SEAL said, here's your lesson for today. Most people, when they quit, they quit at 40%, and they still got 60% left in the tank. They quit because it hurts too much. They're uncomfortable, they love their comfort too much, and they quit. And it's interesting that that actually, maybe the number varies a little bit, but it's actually got some scientific uh, proof or seriousness to it. So I think back to that question, have I ever done anything with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? I think occasionally I've neared that 40% mark. Maybe I've hit that 40% mark. But all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, I don't even know how, what that would for sure look like. If I think, as I was thinking through that, I thought, what, what would cause me to do that? I think the only thing that I could think of that I knew right away I would do with all my heart, strength, mind, soul, strength, is if my family or somebody that I love very closely was in imminent danger and I could do something to prevent that. I would do whatever I could to do that. It's interesting that that's the illustration that I thought of. I'm not the first to have thought that, and it's actually kind of talked about in Scripture. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We'll start in verse 12. John chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus is speaking and says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friend, and that was kind of the one thing that I could think of that maybe would let, that maybe I would do with all my heart, soul, and strength. And it wouldn't just extend to friend; it would extend to flesh and blood, my my two boys, my wife. 
outside of that circle, your chances are going to start going down real fast as to whether I'd be willing to do that. Greater love has no one than this. This is the greatest example of love that human can express, I think, that, that makes natural sense to us. There's a difference in this passage, though, than the first one that we looked at. We're not anymore loving others as ourself. We're loving others as God loved us. Perhaps you remember in 1 John uh, chapter 2, when, we preached, when I preached through that, we talked about this old commandment. He said, I have a, a new commandment to give you. It's actually not a new commandment. It's an old commandment, but it is a new commandment. It's kind of, kind of had to work your way through that. What it is, is the old commandment was the one that was quoted in Mark chapter 12, love others as yourself. That was the greatest expression at the time that we could understand and describe. But then Jesus comes and dies on a cross for us and raises our understanding of what love is. It's the same commandment. It's still to love, but now we have a different perspective, one beyond human love, this superhuman love that God showed us. Once again, our big idea, we're to imitate Christ in our love for one another by loving one another as ourself, but now also loving one another as God loved you or God loved us. Go to Romans chapter 5. As we read this passage, pay attention to who we are in this passage. We looked at examples of, a, of a, someone maybe daring to die for a friend. Let's read this passage. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good one someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, or through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we've looked at a couple examples of people that might dare to die, as this passage says. Somebody might dare to die for a friend, for a righteous person, or I think you could put in there in our context that we think of a lot of times an innocent person, for a good man. We see examples of that. That happens in our culture. Uh, I think of 9-11 stands out as a big example of that. A lot of first responders gave their lives to serve or to try and protect and save uh, innocent people, people that were innocent in the situation. And that's an example of astounding bravery. And as this passage says, perhaps for a good man, somebody would even dare to die. So we need to understand something, though. We were not the innocent person. We were not the righteous person. We were the enemy. It says it right here in this passage, verse 10. 
for we were enemies. We were dead in our sin. There is absolutely no reason, humanly speaking, why Jesus would have gave his life for us. Why then do you think he would love us? It's because God's love for us is unwavering because it's not based on how lovable we are, but on the consistency of God's character. God's supreme act of love came when we were at our most undesirable state. I appreciated Dan talking about some of the attributes of God as we started this service. He didn't know that I was going to be talking about this, but it worked perfectly with it. God's love for us is unwavering because it is not based on how lovable we are, but on the consistency of God's character. He continues to love us, even as believers, through our ongoing sin. The difference between not being far from the kingdom and being in it as we pick up the scribe that we left standing, let's go to John chapter 13. And we'll pick that up. John chapter 13, verse 34. What is the difference between not being far from the kingdom and being in it? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Once again, that cause and effect relationship. If you are truly in the kingdom, you will love others. You will be known by your love, as this passage says. Do you guys like taking pictures? No? (laughs) I was trying to think of this illustration, and I was looking through my phone, and I was like, man, I take a lot of pictures of just things I don't want to forget. It's like my sticky board. Uh, I need to clean off my sticky board. There's a lot of sticky notes on it. But what pictures do you go back to look at? We take pictures of our food. We take, oh, look at this flower. This is nice. Uh, We take pictures of all kinds of stuff. But really the only pictures that we actually care about or that we go back to look at have what in them? People, right? Those are the pictures that you cherish uh, and that matter to you. Life is about relationships and people are what really matter. The Bible is no different. It's a book of relationships. This is a quote from the book Visual Theology. The idea that the Bible is a book about relationships should not be unexpected since the Bible is a rela- or since in the Bible a relational God gives his self-revelation to relational beings. Ultimately, God's purpose in the Bible is to address the fractured and broken relationship between himself and man. In its pages, we learn that we are created to live in relationship with God, but that we deliberately rebelled against him, destroying the peace and harmony that existed between us. We learn that God took action, meeting us in our helplessness by sending his son, Jesus. Can I add in? Showing his love towards us. While God accomp- what God accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ was the greatest act of reconciliation and I think the greatest act of love. Our problem at its heart is the problem of our relationship with our maker. In salvation, 
at least I often think uh, or highlight the idea of our sin being dealt with, but there's also the part about God's wrath towards our sin. God is a holy God. He must be just towards sin. But that God's wrath was appeased in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This means that justice has been done for the sins of all that will ever be pardoned were judged, punished in the person and work of Christ. God's wrath of our sin being appeased is what opens the door to our reconciled relationship with God. This, the gospel being applied to us, is the greatest example of love. Am I right? I can't think of anything that even measures close to that. Nothing else compares. In fact, Scripture describes this love that believers possess as something that angels desire to look into and to understand. 1 Peter chapter 1. That's a pretty powerful thing. The angels have observed what believers experience in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but that was not applied for them. They wonder what that love must feel like to experience. We can only see the power of God's love when we understand God's holiness and we understand our sinfulness and what he did to reconcile us. The gospel has to motivate us to love God and it has to be what motivates us to love others. I want to go to another illustration of God's love for us. Go to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at the parable of the forgiven debt. Matthew Matthew chapter 18. To set this up a little bit, verse 21, Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And if you do some study, I believe it was three times that was required by Jewish law. So I don't know how Peter came up uh, with seven. Do you multiply three times two and add one for bonus? Probably, I don't know. But seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but seventy times seven. And it's not about the math here, because this illustration then comes for us. In verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he begun to settle the accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents, but he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and the payment be made. Now, how much is 10,000 talents? Pretty sure I've heard this preached before, but I couldn't remember. I was like, pretty sure it's a lot, but I don't really remember how much. A talent was the largest denomination of money back then, uh, and it equaled about 6,000 denarii. One talent equaled 6,000 denarii. So a denarii was a day's wage. In 2017, according to the U.S. Census, $137 was the average day's wage. So 10,000 talents would have been 160,000 years wages if you worked seven days a week or somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 billion. So just let me frame that up. Then you read verse 25, but he was not able to pay. Really? (laughs) There's a shocker. 
His master commanded that he be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. Is that payment ever going to be made? Even if all of them work every day of their entire lives, they're not even going to come close to 160,000 years of wages, right? That debt is unpayable in their situation. The servant therefore fell down. You think this is his only resort saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And as the master, you've got to be thinking, no, you won't. There's, it's, it's not going to happen. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Was it anything that the servant did that deserved that debt? That's interesting. I don't think so. Verse 28 But the servant went out and found one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii, so a hundred days wages, three to four months, and laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. As you read that, I'm thinking, whoa, nobody has taken me by the throat for anything I've done. My brother did have that happen once, but that's a different story. It was a case of mistaken identity, but anyways... Verse 30, and he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Does that kind of anger you as you read that? If you're, if you're imagining yourself observing that, you'd be like, whoa, you just got forgiven 160,000 years of wages and now you're grabbing this guy's throat? I mean, you're being pretty aggressive with him over a couple thousand dollars, three to four months wages. And you'd think he could have at least enough grace to not grab him by the throat, right? So verse 31, So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him, which is forever. So my, so my heavenly Father also will to each of you from his heart... Will, let me start over. Verse 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to each... To you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses... The servant's excuse for not loving others was $17,000, right? That's three to four months, or 100 denarii, 100 times 173. It's something like that. I did the math earlier. I just have to take my word for it. $17,000 roughly was the servant's excuse for not loving others. Now, $17,000, that's, that's a significant amount of money. I would really enjoy, if somebody owed me $17,000, I'd want it back. But in the perspective of 160,000 years wages, and $17,000 isn't very much. What's your, what's your excuse for not loving others? What excuse do you use for withholding love? I tried to think of a couple examples. Maybe they dress weird. Maybe they're in a different social class. Maybe they intimidate you. Maybe they're attractive, and that's intimidating. Maybe they're unattractive. 
Maybe they smell bad. Maybe they're rude. Maybe they're too polite. Maybe they say mean things. Maybe they say too many nice things. Maybe they bully you. Maybe they're offensive. Maybe they call you a liar. Maybe they're rich. Maybe they're poor. Maybe they're better than you. They support different politics than you. Maybe they're of a different nationality than you. They talk different than you. Maybe they aren't as smart or they're smarter than you. Maybe they question your integrity. Maybe they intentionally hurt you. Uh, Maybe they cheated you. Maybe you've cheated them. Maybe they've stolen from you. Maybe you've stolen from them. Maybe they've taken advantage of you. Maybe um, they're spiritually more mature than you or you than them, or so you think. Maybe they call you out on things. Maybe they don't. Maybe they talk to you about you. Maybe they talk about you behind your back. Maybe they've intentionally physically, emotionally, or even sexually hurt you. Maybe um, they've forgotten that you exist. Maybe they don't include you. Maybe it's just inconvenient for you. Maybe you don't have the time. Maybe you don't have the money. You don't think you can help. Maybe somebody else is better equipped to help. Maybe you think, maybe you think maybe they don't want the help. Maybe you just don't see the need. The list goes on and on as to why we can't love others and the excuses that we give ourselves. Some of these issues are maybe relational issues. Uh, maybe there's just misunderstanding or communication, miscommunication. I'm good at that, by the way. While others result maybe from somebody actually sinning against us. I hate to break it to you guys, but in life, people are going to mistreat you. And that includes Christians. That includes people in the church. We're all sinners. It's going to happen. Our excuses, guess what? They do not matter at all. They're lame, and honestly, they're logically stupid when you consider what we've been forgiven of. Compare what we've been forgiven of to this parable. 160,000 years wages? At least math works for that, right? There's a hypothetical solution to how that can be paid. How can our debt to God be paid? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Not only can our full debt not be paid, not one cent of it can be paid if it weren't for God. Instead of telling ourselves excuses, maybe we just need to speak them out loud Think of them in terms of what God has loved us. Maybe we even need to tell God our excuses and see if they hold up. I doubt it. God's love for us is unwavering because it is not based on how lovable we are, but on the consistency of God's character. Our love for others has nothing to do with us or them. That's what we need to understand. If you want to love like God loves you, that's how it's got to be. Our love for others has nothing to do with us or them, and it has everything to do about what God has done for you. And remember, love is action. God didn't just feel like he loved us. He didn't just know that he loved us. There was action. Now, I understand that we didn't talk a lot about the action steps and what those might look like today. But wait, that's what the whole rest of the series as I go is going to be about. I'll give you a peek. With your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, even as God loved you, we are to love others through the one another's, through encouraging, 
being humble to one another, being peace, peaceful, being compassionate, being accepting, bearing others in love. I'm excited to preach that one. Bearing others' problems as if they're ours. What's that even look like? Building up others, being devoted to others, being kind towards others, being patient, spurring others to good deeds, praying for others, gentle with others, forgiving others, submitting to others, doing good towards others, in agreement with others, serving others, instructing others, honoring others, being sympathetic towards others, living in harmony with one another. If we did all those actions, do you think that would be visible? And yet sometimes we just say, I know inside that I love others, but do others know you by your Christ-like love? And that is very apparent if you live these things out. So what's the application for you today? Perhaps you're sitting there and you're saying, I don't know if I've experienced God's love like that. I don't really know what you're talking about. That would be the first thing that you need to do. You can't love like God has loved you if, you, if your relationship is broken. I'd encourage you to talk to one of us today if you're, if you're interested in learning more about that. Maybe there's reconciliation that needs to happen in your life. There's, there's broken relationships with people that need to be restored. And it, it doesn't really matter why that is. Love others as God loved you. What do you need to do today in response to the greatest one another? And that is, love others as I have loved you. Perhaps your application today is you just need to love yourself less and God more and love others in that. that that's a pretty hard, this is a hard command to, you're not just going to go decide, I'm going to love others and just do it with everyone. So I challenge you today, choose someone. Choose somewhere to start. Someone that this week you can love at least better than you have been. Looking at God's example and being motivated by God's love for you. Let's close our sermon in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we have done um, what you have done for us. It would do us well to uh, be reminded of the gospel a lot more. Sometimes we just think of it as, as a one-time deal where we accepted, um, we believed in you, and our, and our relationship was restored, and we experienced that love uh, mutually, you for us and, and us for you. But in reality, the gospel that story has to motivate us for everything that we do, for all the transformation that happens in our life, that the progressive sanctification, becoming more like you. Even as our church uh, mission tagline is, is seeking God, loving you, and then that overflows into our love for others. That's your prescription and what you say, if we truly believe in you, will happen. I pray that we would focus on you and be motivated by that even in our relationships this week, and that we would choose just one relationship that we could work on, somebody that we could encourage, somebody that we could show love to, and that we would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.